Well, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Awesome. Hey, well, um, before I jump in, I, I want to take a moment to tell you how honored I am to be here with you today. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, just a privilege to be able to be here with you to open up the scriptures. Um, when my wife and my uh, son and I at the time, we've got several kids now, but when we moved initially to the South Bay area, we first moved to these apartments right here. Literally right here next to Lucky, um, five, six years ago. And um, so on Sunday mornings, I would often see those A-frames. Who sets up the A-frames out of curiosity? Who sets them up? Raise your hand. Awesome. Can we get up? Get up for him. Um, because uh, I would, I would um, those, they work. Okay, they work. I just want to tell you that what you're doing is making a difference. Um, when I would, I would um, sometimes on Sundays I would drive by and I'd see those signs and I would stop and I'd pray for this church here. Um, in fact, and if I wasn't serving as a local pastor at another church, my my family and I probably would have found ourselves right here worshiping with you guys because this was our neighborhood church. And so it's fun now, years later, to to be here and to actually have the opportunity to worship with you guys, to um, open up God's word with you. So it's a real honor to be here with you today. Um, as Pastor Nick mentioned, he asked me to share for a few minutes on um, the beautiful, life-changing truth of adoption, um, our spiritual adoption into God's family. And when he asked me that, I said, heck yes, I will talk on that. And let me tell you why I was really excited about that. Um, because adoption changes everything. It changes everything. And if we could if we could get this truth into our hearts and into our minds, um, it, it changes everything. It'll change our perspective on our identity, our sense of value, our sense of self-worth, our, our perspective on who we are as we stand before God and who we are as we stand before others. It will change um, how we approach God. It'll change our understanding of how God approaches us. It will change how we treat one another, our priorities in our life, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our, what we value in this life. It changes everything. And so, I want to jump into this today in hopes that we can uh, grow in our understanding and our appreciation for what God is offering us through adoption. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. That's in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm, I'm guessing that um, this strapping young gentleman is offering one right now. So you can just raise your hand and you can, he'll put one in your hands. Um, Galatians chapter 4, verses 3. Or verses three, 3 through 7, rather. Let me read this to us. This is God's word. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we're his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but you're God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you his heir. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this incredible truth. Thank you so much for your word that you have revealed this to us, God, what you have done and what you are offering us. I pray, Lord, that every single person, if this is their first time here simply exploring what all this means, or if, they, if the folks that have been walking with you for decades, God, I pray that every one of us to a greater degree would understand what you're offering us, the beauty of it, the implications of it. We pray, God, that your spirit would be here with us today, opening our hearts and minds to what you'd have to share with us. We're thankful for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. As we talk today about spiritual adoption, I want to just point out three very simple things. Three things. Um, I want to talk about our longing for adoption, the benefits of adoption, and then finally, the transformation that our adoption brings. Okay? Our longing for adoption, the benefits of this adoption that God is offering to us, and then finally, the transformation that this adoption will bring. So first, let's look at the longing for adoption. So here in Galatians, what I just read to you says, Paul says, we are like slaves to the world. We have been like, we've been like slaves in our sin. We are shackled. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are out of control. We're slaves. But God has sent a rescuer. He has sent his son. He has sent one who would come and he would set us free. Set, move us from slavery and on into freedom. Move us from being an orphan and alone into being a, a child of the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Move us from being destitute to being an heir of the most high God. It's unbelievable news. This is the, the greatest news in all the world. And yet it's also a little bit offensive, isn't it? I don't, I don't know you. I don't know if this is your first time, if you've been here since the inception of Mercy Hill. There may be some of you who are here today for the very first time, and you're just checking all this out, and you're curious. You hear the name of Jesus all the time. You're curious what this is all about. You're here, and the first thing you hear me say is, you're a slave. You're helpless. You're out of control. You can't help yourself. You're desperate for somebody to rescue you. And I know that that can be a little bit offensive. But let me... If that initially rubs you the wrong way, can I, can I just push back real gently just for a moment and say that I think on some level every one of us get this. On some level. You know, actually, I, um, I've been leading a small group in my home on Wednesday nights. And it's, it's a, uh, con- we have a conversation around faith and spirituality, a very open conversation. You don't have to be a believer to be in there. So we've been having folks from all different walks and backgrounds come. And so there's a Sikh family that's been coming and it's been amazing getting to know them. They're not, they're very open. They're not followers of Jesus, but they just, they're open to have conversations and it's been incredible. Um, one of their, their most deeply held beliefs is they're good people. They're just, they're good people. And so, um, they're good people, so therefore, in the end, when all is said and done, regardless of what name you put on God and so on, um, that they're going to stand before God and it will all be okay because they've really tried their best and God will understand that. That's a really, that's a really commonly held belief. Um, and, and so as we've been, we've been having these conversations about it and what's been coming out little by little is just their understanding of their brokenness. The understanding of those things that they struggle with and these things that are, that are dishonoring to God. Every one of us, if we're honest, get this, what I just said to you, that we're slaves to our sin. We're broken. Everyone has to some degree have this reality written on our hearts. That's why um, someone said, uh, Tim Keller, pastor from New York, he said this. He said, that's why we keep telling these same stories over and over again that we keep telling. Why we celebrate some of these same stories that we celebrate generation after generation. Why we resonate so much with these same kind of storyline within literature and movies and TV shows and kids stories and all the rest of it. He said, he said, he said think about the stories that we tell over and over. This damsel who's in, this, in, in distress, who's locked up in the tallest tower, right? And there's a, there's a dragon that's keeping watch over the tower, right? This, this evil creature that's, that's got this, this, this damsel in, in distress, enslaved. And just when all hope seems lost... When there's no hope for her future and everything is dark and broken, 
in comes the knight in shining armor. And he rides in to do battle against the dragon. And he comes and he slays the evil one. And he sets the damsel in distress free. And they ride off together happily ever after. Why generation after generation after generation do we keep telling the same story? It's everywhere in our stories. It's not just, we just keep repackaging it in different ways. Can I give you some examples? Sleeping Beauty. What does Sleeping Beauty tell us? Sleeping Beauty tells us that death is not the end. That one day a prince is going to come and he's going to wake us up out of our sleep and we're going to be invited into his family and our life will never be the same again. What about Cinderella? Cinderella tells us that one day a prince will come and he will set us free from this life of oppression that we've been living in. He's going to welcome us into the royal family. What about Lion King? Uh, Lion King reminds us that when the, the rightful king is sitting on the throne, all is well. Everything is as it should be, right? But the evil one came and took the throne. But don't worry. Even though things are broken now and they're desolate and they're dark, one day the son of the king is going to return and he's going to take back that which is rightfully his. And when he does, all things will be restored. That's the story. What about Beauty and the Beast? We keep, we keep, we just keep making more and more movies of that one. I don't know how many Beauty and the Beast movies we need. Um, but why, are we so, why do we keep making the same movie over and over and over again? We're telling the same story with different actors, different ways. Could it be it's because we're so fascinated by the, idea, by the idea that maybe, just maybe, there's a beauty out there that will see past our ugliness and see past our mistakes and see past uh, all the, the brokenness and the way that we've disfigured ourselves and show us an act of true love. Show us true love that would, that would make us new again, give us new bodies. Is that why we keep telling the same story over and over? The same stories are being written today. What about Frozen? How many of you have little ones? And you've seen Frozen a hundred times. <laughs> Megan, I know you have. Megan, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay? How do you melt a frozen heart according to the blockbuster that is Frozen? How do you turn back the tide of the eternal winter? That's right. She's got it. She's watched it. Um, <laughs> give it up. That's good. Uh, an act of true love, right? An act of, do you remember, for those of you who have seen it, do you remember what the act of true love is in the movie Frozen that turns back the eternal tide of winter? Sacrifice. The one, Anna, the one who was rejected, laid down her life for the one who rejected her and turns back the tide of the eternal winter. It's just the same story over and over and over again. Could it be that we are so fascinated by this story and we keep telling the same stories over and over? We keep spending $37 per ticket on a mo- at a movie theater uh, to see these stories because we know that ultimately this is what we need. It's what we long for. That's why when my little girl one day, my five-year-old little girl comes to me one day and says, Daddy, I wish there was a real prince who would come and who would kiss me and wake me up out of my sleep. I wish that there was a, a real knight in shining armor. I, I wish there was a real Superman who would come from some other world with powers to fight evil. I wish there was somebody who would come to my home and, and be able to fly away with me to a land where I would never grow old. You know what I can tell her? It's true. <laughs> there is a prince. There is a knight in shining armor. His name is Jesus. 
On some level, every one of us get this. This is what we're so desperate for. We're so fascinated with these stories. On some level, every single one of us get that we need somebody to come and save us. We, we, we resonate with Paul when, when in, in Romans 7, he says to the Christians in Rome, he says, man, the things that I, the good things that I want to do, I so desperately want to do, I just can't seem to get myself to do them. The man that I want to become, I just can't seem to get there. The things that I don't want to do, those are the very things I keep going back to over and over and over and over again. Does anybody relate with that? And he says, after he says this, after this like lament, he says, who will save me from this body of death? And then he answers himself, Jesus Christ, that's who. And some of you have said the same thing. You said, man, I just, I'm not becoming the man that I, I know God is calling me to be. I'm not becoming the woman that God is calling me to be. And these very same habits, these sins that I keep going back to over and over and over again, who will save me from this body of death? The same answer is true today. Jesus Christ. In Galatians 4, we just read it. It says, God has sent his son to buy freedom for us who are slaves. There is a rescuer. There is a knight in shining armor who has fought for you, and he's come to rescue you and invite you into a new life. God has sent his son to buy freedom for us who are slaves. The, the, the even greater news than that is he doesn't just offer us freedom. He offers us adoption. He says in verse 7 again, it says, Now you're no longer a slave, but you're God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you his heir. But what does that mean? Like, what, Why is that so significant? Let's look together at that. Let's look together at the benefits of adoption. Why is that important? Through, through Jesus Christ, again, we are invited to become a child of God. But here's the deal. If you ask a lot of people in our world today, they'd say, well, we're all children of God, right? I mean, God's everybody's father. And I guess you could kind of say, I mean, kind of. Right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, maybe in the same way that you could say, like, uh, Thomas Jefferson is the, the father of democracy here in America. Like, in that kind of general sense, you could say, yes, that's true. Because God created everybody, he's kind of our father. Yes, that's, that's kind of true. But I am convinced that what is being communicated here is something very, very different and something very, much more significant than that. Let me tell you a, a few reasons why I think God uses the concept of adoption to describe the relationship that he wants with you and with me. First, uh, there is a level of intimacy and familiarity within a family relationship, right? So like I love Megan and Nick. I have a great respect and, and affection for your leaders here at this church. But if Pastor Nick um, came over to my house tonight at two in the morning and he knocked on my door and said, uh, Hey Philip, um, could you get me a glass of water? As much as I love you. Um, I would, I would say, no, like man, go, go, go to your own home, get your glass of water. But if my three-year-old son comes into my bedroom tonight at two in the morning and he shakes me and he says, daddy, I really need a cup of water. You know what I'll do? I'll roll out of bed, I'll take him by the hand, and he'll waddle next to me, and we'll walk down the hall, and we'll go into the kitchen, and I'll get my son a glass of water, and then I'll make sure that he's back in his bed safely. I'll give him a kiss goodnight, and I'll go back to bed. You see what's weird and <laughs> rude and a little bit inappropriate for somebody outside of the family is completely appropriate for somebody within the family. It's natural. 
It's acceptable. It's appropriate because of that family relationship. In fact, it's not just appropriate. If my five-year-old little girl comes into my room tonight and says, in the middle of the night, and says, Daddy, I'm scared. I had a bad dream. Would you hold me? Not only would I be willing to do it, I'd love doing it. I love being there for my little girl when she's scared or when she needs me. I love it. So do you, do you see what I think Paul is saying here in this passage about our relationship with God? He's saying, stop holding back. Like there's a level of intimacy that God is desiring with you or des- desiring uh, with you in his relationship with us. He said, you, you've, sometimes we keep ourselves so distant, afraid to come to God. But he's saying, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're part of the family now. You're in the family. Come close. He, he wants to hold you. He wants to be there for you at two in the morning. He wants that. There's a level of intimacy and familiarity within a family relationship. Second, there's also a level of care that's communicated. My kids don't have to convince me to use my resources to care for them. They don't have to talk me into providing for them each day. They don't have to beg me to feed them each day. They don't have to beg me for a warm blanket to sleep with at night and a roof over their heads. They don't need to do that. Sometimes we think we have to convince God of providing us for us our, our most basic needs. We feel guilty coming to God and asking for, for our provision. He is your good and perfect father who loves to provide for you. If we, being imperfect parents, know how to bless our kids with good things, how much more can our perfect heavenly father give us what we need just at the right time? See the significance of adoption? What he's offering us in a family relationship? There's also a level of investment I heard uh, I heard a pastor talk about this one time. It like blew my mind. Um, again, I am not a perfect father by any stretch of the imagination. I am I'm uh, I'm not even a great father sometimes. But I desperately want my kids to be happy and successful and to be fruitful and make and make a difference in their lives. I desperately want my kids to grow up and do well in their life. Um, I pray every day that my kids would grow up to reach their full potential as followers of Jesus and as men and women. Um, we've been doing that. For example, we've been doing this thing on Fridays. Uh, we call fancy pants Friday, uh, in our home. And so we, uh, we like transform our dinner time and we call it, and it's fancy pants. So, uh, we make it fancy, right? We put a tablecloth on the table and we, is that funny? <laughs> um, so, uh, we, uh, we put candles on the table and we, um, you know, we, we make a three-course meal. We actually make a normal meal, and we serve it in three courses, okay? It's good. The kids, they don't know. So, um, and, uh, and, so and, we, and everybody's wearing clothes, which is, again, also a step up for my family. So, um, and so we, it's, it's a nice time. And then, so then at the beginning of the meal beforehand, like, I'll take some extra time, and I'll pray over the kids. I'll pray for each one and then pray for my wife. Just take some extra time. We pray over our kids. And then we have a good meal together. And our, my wife and I drink good wine that night. And my, my kids drink um, uh, sparkling soda. My, my, my three-year-old calls it sprinkle juice. He drinks the sprinkle juice. And, um, and we have a nice meal. And we have lots of laughter. And we have meaningful conversations. And, and, then, um, and then at our time where we serve dessert, I'll open up the scriptures and I'll, and I'll read a passage of scripture to my family. And then we'll take a few minutes and we'll talk through what that passage means. And the reason we do it at dessert is because I want my kids to understand that just like that ice cream or that dessert is sweet to their tongue, the word of God can be sweet to their soul. So we talk through those things. Now, why do we do that? 
because I want to invest in my kids. I want them to grow up to, to reach their full potential as followers of Jesus, as men and women who love Jesus and live for him. I do the same thing with in kind of other areas. I, uh, my nine-year-old, I, I think my nine-year-old's got like some, some great leadership ability. I just see this little mind that he has. He's, he's such an entrepreneur and such a, I've never seen a kid who makes up, who's always creating something, always has ideas. And so like I, I sat him down not too long ago and I said, Israel, like I, I see this thing. This is a gift from God. And I want to invest in, in this because I want to help you reach your full potential. And I'm not going to pay you to go clean up our backyard. Like that's part of you being a member of our family. But I will invest in this here because I want to see you reach your full potential. And so I gave him this, these leadership books. And I'm like, if you, he, he loves to read. So if you read these leadership books, like John Maxwell and these, uh, the, he said, I read these books. And I said, you give me your top three learnings from each of these books. I'll give you five bucks a book. So now he's like, you know, going through these leadership books. Why do I do that? Because I want to invest in my kids because I want them to reach their full potential. Now, I just gave you my highlight reel, okay? Um, that, that's, yeah, I'm, not giving, I'm not showing you my blooper reel, okay? All the times I've fallen away. Like, it sounds like I'm a really great dad, but I'm actually, I'm a very imperfect father. Make a lot of mistakes. But if I, as an imperfect father want to see my kids reach their full potential, and I invest in them the way, the way that we're investing in them, imagine a perfect father. See, I'm limited in my power. God is unlimited in his power. He is omnipotent. He is perfect in his power. If I want to see my kids reach their full potential, then surely God, as a perfect heavenly father, wants to see his kids reach their full potential. To see who, who they were meant to be. And, and I'm limited in my power. God's unlimited in his power. Are you following me? Are you tracking with me? That means we can be confident that we will become the men and women that he's designing us to be as our perfect heavenly father invests in us. In fact, that's what the scriptures say. Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He will see it through to completion. That to me is incredible news. These are some of the amazing benefits of adoption into God's family, the intimacy, the care, the provision, the investment. But perhaps the most amazing benefit of all that God offers to us in adoption is the unconditional nature, the unconditional nature of being a part of his family. I don't know about you, but there are many days when I don't feel like I should be a child of God. I don't understand why he allows me to be a, a child of God. In fact, this last week I was wrestling with just tremendous feelings of inadequacy brokenness but friends i want to, i want to think about adoption for a second what is adoption adoption is not the result of the efforts of the child it's not a result of an of the acts of a child it's the result of the act of the parent you follow me it's not based on the efforts or the behavior of the children at all. Sometimes, in fact, it's despite that. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, when a child is adopted into a home, there's behavioral issues. Especially if you're adopting from a child from somewhere where maybe they've, they've experienced some trauma or there's been kind of a different value system or way of doing things. Oftentimes, they come in and there's some issues, some behavioral issues. That's, that's often the case. When they are adopted, in that moment where it is changed and they are now definitively, legally adopted, does the, do the behaviors immediately change for that child? 
No. And I can tell you that from experience. Okay. Um, my, I grew up with four brothers who were adopted. When I was um, a teenager, we adopted my three youngest brothers right here from the foster system in Santa Clara County. And um, I can tell you, the day when it was legally, definitively decided they were adopted into our family, they were still unruly little kids. All right? Um, but when my parents adopted my youngest brothers, Robert, Kevin, and Jeremy, um, the... The shift was not one of behavior, it was one of status. It was not one of behavior, it was one of status. My parents were essentially saying, okay, you are now legally my child. You are now legally our children. You're no longer somebody that we're just going to send away if you misbehave. We're not, we're not going to send you home when you don't get your act together. We are your home now. We are your home Friends, this is adoption. This is the amazing news. It's unconditional. And this is what God offers to each and every one of us. John 1.12 says, As many as received Jesus and who believed on his name, he gave the authority to become children of God. And as a result of that, in John 17, Jesus says that, that even as the Father loves him, he loves us. He says, the Father loves us, you and me, even as the Father loves him, Jesus. I think that's amazing if you think about those two words, even as. In other words, just to the same degree, just as, to the same degree that the Father loves Jesus, he loves us. And that blows my mind. I think, how in the world can that be? How could we get what Jesus deserves? But you see, that's the beauty of the gospel, that's the, God, that's the good news. That's the message of the good news. Is on the cross, Jesus got what I deserved. He got punishment. He got justice. Because of my sins, my wrongdoings were placed on him. And he took the full weight of the wrath of God in my place. And then he freely gives me what, I des- or what he deserves. I get love and blessing and, and, and access and relationship with the Father. That's the beautiful news of the gospel. Now, what if we just believe that? What if we actually believe that day to day? We often don't, do we? You know how I know that? Because we still worry about the same things. We still continue to get anxious about the same things day after day. If we really believe the good news of the gospel each and every day, we wouldn't be worried like we are. Because what if my nine-year-old laid awake at night wondering whether or not I was going to feed him the next day? What, what would that communicate about his faith in me as a, as a father and as a provider? What would that communicate? If my son laid awake at night wondering whether or not he was a, a member of our family, a, a, an accepted member of our family, what would that say? What would that communicate about his faith and my love for him? His faith in me as a father to him. And yet we still struggle with these same worries, don't we? What would it look like if we actually believed that God is our good father? So for those of you today who are followers of Jesus, I want to just lay out a challenge to you this week. As anxiety creeps in over your job again. As worries creep in over your relationships and over your finances over the mistakes that you continue to come back to, as, as you stress out over those decisions that you have to make, what if you stopped for a moment 
and you reflected on again the beauty of the truth. Oh, I'm a I'm a beloved daughter of the Most High King. I'm a beloved son of the Most High King. Would that change the level of peace that you have in that moment? Would it change your perspective a little bit? Would you take a breath, maybe a little bit, a little bit deeper of a breath, and relax a little bit? Oh, that's right. I'm a son of the Most High God. In verse 6, again, it says, Because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. I was reading that verse this week, and my son, my nine-year-old, said, what, is, what does Abba, Father mean? And so my wife and I talked to them, and we said, Well, sometimes when we, when we pray, you know, our Father who is in heaven, sometimes we still, like, formalize it, even though it's like, come on, our Father is like, Heavenly Father. You know, that's kind of how we approach it sometimes. It's still so formal and so cold and so distant. What he's, what's very clearly saying, Abba Father is this, this informal, intimate way to communicate with somebody who's very, very close to you. I said, I told my son, I said, think about this, son. This is amazing. I said, the same God who created all that we see around us, the trees, the, the birds that, that make its nest in the trees, the, the sky, the sun, the stars, the moon, the one that put every insect, one that created colors, the God who created music and tones and rhythms, the God that came up with the idea of laughter and joy, the God that came up with uh, colors and, and the God that came up with babies, you know, the, the God that, that created every galaxy across the universe. He says, hey, when you come to me, I want you to say, hi, dad. Thomas said, isn't that amazing that we get that privilege? Hi, Dad. That's what it means. And he's placed his spirit into your heart. So when he says, he prompts us to call that out. So in those moments where you're feeling stressed and anxious and worried, you're feeling concerned in the good days and in the bad, this week, could you try those two words? Could, the spirit, could, could you submit when the spirit prompts you to call out, Hi, Dad. I need to talk. Would you let him encourage you? Would you let him challenge you? Would you let him hold you? These are the benefits of adoption. Um, as we wrap up our time in just, just a couple of minutes, I want to mention just one final thought. We've talked about the longing for adoption. We've talked about the benefits of adoption. Let me just share one more thing with you before we wrap up. Finally, I want to look with you at the transformation that comes through this adoption. When you and I are adopted into the family of God, we slowly, very slowly, often, we slowly but surely begin to bear the family resemblance. Um, when my brothers were adopted into our family, um, again, slowly but surely, uh, they, they adopted a new way of life. So there was a new value system that they adopted. There was a, a, a new way of treating one another. There was a new way of spending money, a new way of spending their time, a new way of talking to one another, a new way of um, uh, treating one another, a new way of thinking, really. It, it was a, a new, new uh, sense of priorities, a new sense of, um, really, their entire life was set on this new trajectory as a result of their adoption. And the same is true with you and me. When God adopts us, we adopt a new way of life, and we begin to bear that family resemblance. The heart of God slowly becomes the heart of you and me. 
We begin to value the things that he values. We begin to love the things that he loves. Our hearts break for the things that break his heart. We begin to think and act more and more like Jesus thinks and acts. When we realize what God has done for us, it it begins to overflow out of us and begins to change the way that we interact with the people and the things around us. This is why I believe compassion efforts and efforts towards social justice have marked the church for 2,000 years. The last 2,000 years. The church gets a lot of bad press these days, doesn't it? Some of it's warranted. But really, if you go throughout history, you're going to see that for the last 2,000 years, the church has stepped into places of brokenness and injustice. And just like God has done with us, we brought healing and hope. Did you know, in fact, that the first known hospital in every nation across the globe was started by the Christian movement? Did you know that? Education reform, the abolition of slavery, women's rights, all trace their roots back to the Christian movement. And the same is true with adoption. Um, did you know that uh, we, from, from thousands of years ago, the, the, the Christ, Christians have had its, their hands in, in adoption efforts? I read this account not too long ago about an old Roman practice about how when a child would be born into a Roman family, this child would be placed at the feet of its father. And as the father looked down, if the father st- bent down and stooped down and picked up that child into his arms, the child would be legitimized and brought into the family. But if the father didn't stoop down and pick up the child, maybe the child was weak or frail. Maybe the child wasn't the preferred gender. Maybe it was simply an inconvenient time for the family. Instead, they would pick up that child and they would take the baby out to a designated place outside of the city and they would leave the baby there to die. Die from starvation or the elements or from wild animals. But did you know it was the Christians that stepped in and reversed the practice? There, there are stories of these Christians who would go out regularly to these designated places. And they would rescue these children and they'd bring home these kids who have been neglected. They'd bring them back home and they would raise them up as their own beloved sons and daughters. And it was the Christians that put pressure on the Roman government to outlaw the practice. This is our history. The same is true with foster care. There's a guy named Charles Brace 200 years ago that was born in up like Connecticut area. And um, born in a small town, middle class family, um, went to church every Sunday with his parents. Um, one day when he was a teenager, sitting in church just like this, he was listening to his pastor speak. And his pastor said something basically like this. He said something to the effect of, you all have seen the brokenness in the world around you. We've all seen it. We've all seen how broken our world is. Now, he said, when we think about all that God has done for us, it's impossible for us to think that we don't have some responsibility to do the same thing for others. To show that same love to someone else. And it was a defining moment in Charles' life. And so a few years went by and he went off to school out in New York City. He was going to go study the scriptures. He was going to go become a pastor. So he went off to New York City and he found himself one day walking through New York City. And he was walking through Five Points. If you're familiar at all with that neighborhood, Five Points, it's, it's infamous for its crime, its poverty, its prostitution. There were, when it's, as Charles is walking through the, the streets, there were thousands and thousands of children living in that area in incredibly unhealthy and dangerous environments. And as he walked through that neighborhood, like his heart just melted within him. And his mind raced back to that message that he'd heard when he was 15 years old. About if, if, if God has done this for us and, and, and laid down his life to care for us and bring us healing and bring us hope and bring us into his family, then surely we must be, we must be able to do something for someone else. 
And so his mind raced back to that. And he said, I, as, as a Christian who has been brought into the family of God, cared for by God, surely I've got to do something. And so he rallied together a bunch of his acquaintances and his colleagues and so on. He brought together business leaders. He brought together church leaders. And they started what they called the Children's Aid Society. And the Children's Aid Society, which, by the way, is still going today. They started what, what is commonplace to us today, but at the time, the, these, these programs didn't exist. They started stuff like the free school lunch program to provide food for kids so that they could eat and have fresh minds as they're studying. They started dental clinics for kids, the first dental clinics for kids. They started the first schools for handicapped children. Most importantly, in my opinion, my very unbiased opinion, is they started what we now know as the modern foster care system. So they, would, they saw all these kids who were living in these incredibly unhealthy environments. And so they, would help, they helped find loving homes for these kids to come into while their parents were able to sort through their stuff until they were ready to be able to care for their kids again. They provided loving homes where these, these kids could be safe, could be secure, could find a, a, a place to heal from the trauma that they had been through and be able to have a hope for their future. Foster care was started by a Christian. What we now know as the modern foster care system stemmed from the belief that if all that God has done for us, when we realize this, all, we should surely be able to do the same thing for others. The motivation that spurred Charles Brace on and his team to start that is the same motivation that's, that's happening today. The same spirit that was at work 2,000 years ago, the same spirit that 150 years ago that helped Charles you know, motivate him to, to do what he did is still at work today. And that's why we did start Foster the Bay. It's because of this understanding that, man, if, if God brought me into his family, surely I can do the same for someone else. And so we launched Foster the Bay. If you haven't heard the, the story, about three years ago, my wife and I were beginning to foster. Um, we've got three biological kiddos, and then we've taken in some placements of some other kids over the last few years. And our hearts just began to break as we learned more and more about the need in the foster care system right in our own backyard for kids who need a home. And so we invited our little church. I was pastoring a little church at the time down here in South San Jose. And um, we invited our little church to be a part of it as well. And so our church, as a corporate body, um, said, we're going we're gonna to try to make a difference and do something. We're going to uh, come up with some donations over here. We're going to come up with a couple of events that we're going to do throughout the year to let the social workers know that we are for them and we value what they're doing and they're making a difference. And then our big goal was we wanted to raise up one new foster family from within our church. That was our big goal. We thought one new, maybe there's one new family that would open up their home. And so uh, the Department of Family and Children's Services here in Santa Clara County um, caught wind of what our little church wanted to do. And so we, they reached out to us and they said, hey, we think it's cool what you guys are doing. Can we set up a meeting? And so I sat across from them in my office one day back in 2015. And they said, we think this is really cool. Um, but she said, are there other churches that have that same heart? She said, what, what, what would it be like if you guys were to spearhead a faith alliance among other churches? That was the term she used, a spearhead of faith alliance. And so I said, can you please tell me what that means? Like, what, so what does that mean to you? Um, and she said, she said very clearly, she's like, we don't really need more donations. And she said, we don't, we don't need more events. We need homes. She said, the reality is we've got a whole lot of kids who are experiencing trauma in Santa Clara County. And they're coming into the foster system and we don't have a home for them. And so what's happening is we're having to ship them outside of our county to all areas of California. 
to find homes for these kids. They're being separated from their siblings, separated from their schools, separated from their communities. They've already experienced trauma. Now we're just adding trauma on top of it because there aren't enough homes to care for them right here in our own backyard. Um, so long story short, we said yes. Uh, and we, in fall of 2015, so about two years ago, we, we, we launched Foster the Bay. And uh, by the grace of God, it's, it's been incredible to see what, what the church has done. Churches like Mercy Hill. Um, our big dream was we wanted to see one new foster family. I was a foster parent. I actually didn't think we were going to do that. <laughs> I actually thought, I mean, I, I, I'm embarrassed to, to admit that now, but I thought, I know how hard this is. I thought, I don't know if we're going to be able to get one more. But God loves to, to show off a little bit, I think, sometimes. He flexes muscles a little bit. We've seen 60, more than 60 new foster families set forward over the last two years. Awesome. Um, and that's, I, can, I can clap for that because uh, it's not, we're not doing it. We've seen more than 60 new families step forward and say, we're going to begin the process to become foster parents. We've seen almost 150 families say, well, we can't foster, but we'll stand beside them and we'll, we'll act as support friends. Like, we'll support them on the journey. We'll text them and encourage them. We'll pray for them on a regular basis. We'll drop a meal off once a month, or we'll babysit once a month. Like, we'll stand, we'll walk alongside you. We'll commit ourselves to your family as you take that journey. We'll, we'll journey with you. I've seen almost 150 families. Um, Patty and the team, Patty Madden, who's one of, by the way, who has probably offered more to move that vision forward than any person out there. She's one of our key leaders Patty is unbelievable. You have such a gift in the Madden family. Um, if you don't know Patty and Jason, get to know them because they're an incredible couple. Um, but they, their team told us today that we've seen, already seen 60 new children placed in a foster the Bay homes over the last two years. It's unbelievable to me. The co- this coalition of churches, that have, this, this faith alliance that this woman um, kind of dreamed up, this wasn't our idea, it was her idea. Um, she, this, we, they already seen 25 new churches jumped on board saying, we're in. We're going to be part of that. And Mercy Hill was one of the very first. One of my uh, hopes in being here today, I didn't tell Nick this, but was I just simply want to honor you guys for leading the way. You were one of the very first churches to say, we want to be a part of this. We see God's hand all over this. This is such an amazing reflection of the gospel we want in. You guys have led the way. One of the very first churches to rush the front lines. And so I want to say thank you. And I want you to know, I'm not blowing smoke. I want you to know, that because of your contribution and your partnership, um, because you let um, your, your, your leaders support it so much, you guys are, are one of the, the key reasons why I think we're going to see some of the, the most vulnerable lives in the Bay Area experience the love of God. There are 7,000 children in the foster system in the Bay Area right now. That's 7,000 children with 7,000 names and 7,000 stories, and every single one of those stories matters to God. And I truly, I truly believe that because of churches like Mercy Hill, that one day the Bay Area Church is going to become known as the place, the community where, where abused and neglected children become beloved sons and daughters. That we're going to become known as the place that connects with the most vulnerable lives. I think it's going to bring a tremendous amount of glory to God. In fact, as we shared, as we're expanding now into other counties, I shared with the government worker what's happened here in Santa Clara County through churches like Mercy Hill. And I shared with them, and I said, we want to we we help you, want to add, add value to what you're doing up here and help provide homes for you. And I shared with him what's happening in Santa Clara County. And this is what he said. He was a Hindu gentleman. And he said, here's a group of churches that are not just talking the talk, but are walking the walk. And I quote. Um, he, said, I just, he said, where have you guys been all this time? That's what he said. 
And I just, I love, I love how much honor we're bringing God as we're showing, as we're infusing into the community what, what God has done for us, we're doing for others. We don't just talk about it for 45 minutes here on a Sunday morning. We live it out there. And again, I know I'm a broken record. It's because of what God has done for us. When I was alone, when I was beat up, when I was broken, when I was hopeless, when I had no hope for my future, God laid down his life for me to be brought into his family. So surely I can do the same for someone else. And as I close, I want you to know I'm not going to make a call for you to be foster parents. You can breathe. Okay? Take a breath, everyone. I'm not going to guilt you into becoming a foster parent. The fact is, for most of you, that will not be part of your story. And that's okay. Most of you shouldn't be foster parents. I probably shouldn't be a foster parent, actually. Um, But for one or two of you, maybe that's what God's leading you to do. I don't know. For most of you, that's not going to be your story. What I'm here to ask, though, if you were a child of God, if he has adopted you and brought brought you in his family, are you beginning to bear the family resemblance? Are you starting to look and think and act more like your father? Because that will happen. Um, would you bow your head and we'd close your eyes with me as we wrap up our time. I'm just going to, um, ask you to reflect on a few questions in light of our conversation today. Have you said yes to the offer of adoption into God's family? If not, I want you to know that that offer is free and it's available for you today. You don't have to use magic words or. Um, You just simply tell him from your heart to his that you want to receive the forgiveness that he's offering you. You just simply tell him that you want to um, uh, live your life from this day forward for him. You want to be his child. If you have said yes to that offer, I want to ask, are you experiencing the peace that comes from knowing you're a child of God? Are you enjoying the intimacy and the care and the provision and the investment and the sense of security that your father wants for you? This is what he wants for you. Are you beginning to bear that family resemblance? Are the things that are near to God's heart near to your heart? Are you looking more and more like Jesus? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and I thank you for what you've done and are doing through them. I thank you for them as individuals, every person here today. Um, I pray, God, that you would instill in us, again, a greater appreciation um, to embrace that to which you have called us, adoption into your family, adoption into your, um, uh, God, that we would, we would embrace the relationship as, as son to father, daughter to father, every one of us, God, and that we would bear the family resemblance more and more each and every day. I pray that corporately, God, you would move so heavily, so strongly in this church that South San Jose would never be the same. I pray, God, that you would do some incredible things through this church for the glory of your name. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.